From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hello, and welcome to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. This is Fire Captain Jeff Hughes, acting as your host for this episode regarding something that is very near and dear to my heart, firefighter behavioral health. We're going to hear from our risk manager, Jonathan Wilby, as well as Shauna Hill from the Counseling Team International regarding everything OCFA has done, is doing, and will be doing uh, moving forward with regards to firefighter behavioral health. This is an extended interview with both of them regarding uh, what is featured on the most recent monthly briefing. And this episode ends with a plug for me about the upcoming behavioral health conference, past, present, and future. That's going to be held at our OCFA headquarters Wednesday, October 24th, and Thursday, October 25th. This is a one-day conference held two days in a row uh, and will feature stories and points of view from people in the fire service talking about the massive strides we as a workforce have taken to combat this issue. So all that is coming up soon, uh, but we wanted to mention some other news and noteworthy items here first. OCFA welcomed more than 3,000 residents to our headquarters on Saturday, October 6th for the annual open house. Thanks to everyone uh, who helped make this event such a big success. And thanks to everyone who worked the following Saturday, October 13th, at the 30 station open houses across the county. It's always a lot of fun for the families to see how uh, the local fire stations work and meet the crews. This Sunday, October 21st, the Benevolent Association is hosting its annual fall festival from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Oak Canyon Park. Remember, this is a free event uh, for all active and retired members and their dependents. Non-members and guests are $10 each, $5 for kids. There's games, rides, a petting zoo, live music, and a raffle. A great way to spend a Sunday. Then on Tuesday, October 23rd, the OCFA is holding a dedication for the Urban Search and Rescue Warehouse in Foothill Ranch at 9.30 a.m. This is a big deal for this organization. This warehouse will hold our entire USAR cash. There are offices and meeting rooms. It's going to raise our program to the next level. Then of course, on the 24th and 25th is the Behavioral Health Conference I spoke of earlier. Tickets are still available on both days. Just register at www.ocfatraining/classes/health to sign up. It's a free event uh, and we'll be supplying lunch both days. And we'd like to welcome our newest reserve firefighters from Academy 21 officially on Saturday, November 3rd for their graduation. Congratulations to them for finishing our program. Okay, that's all for news and noteworthy items. Let's get to the behavioral health stuff. The Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance reported 108 firefighter EMT suicides in 2017, which exceeded all line of duty deaths combined. It's estimated that only about 40 to 45% of suicides are reported. So that number underreports the issue. Also, first responders are 10 times more likely 
than the general population to have contemplated suicide or attempt it. Let's go now to our risk manager, Jonathan Wilby, who addresses the change that has been happening regarding how our agency deals with behavioral health of our employees. In 2016, the fire service started to really openly talk about behavioral health issues. And they started to talk more about PTSD, the stressors of the job, and also suicide on the job. Up until that point, it was more of, of the fire service's dirty little secret. Um, we talked a lot about cancer, we talked a lot about cardiac, but the impact of uh, PTSD wasn't really talked about. So when that started being talked about, this agency, as well as a lot of agencies in the fire service, decided they were going to start addressing, providing better resources to their personnel. And we made a commitment to doing that. Um, in the middle of 2016, it became one of our stri strategic plan domain objectives to um, create programs to reduce the impact of PTSD on our personnel. And we are moving towards putting together programs to do that. A joint labor management work group was put together that included executive management, risk management, 3631, and also the Chief Officers Association. And we started to talk through what the project was going to be. And in December of 2016, we were kicking off that project by going to an IAFF conference that was in Sacramento, California. And we were going to use what we learned at that conference and also build the bond within the Joint Labor Management Committee and start addressing the issue that we knew was out there. We hopped on the plane at John Wayne Airport. We arrived in Sacramento, California. And about the time we arrived, we started getting phone calls. And it was phone calls to let each of us know through our different um, means of communication that we had a suicide in our department and that Eric Weave had committed suicide. Um, that was, that was a shocking moment for all of us. It um, really was one that stressed the importance of why we were at that conference. Here we were going to a, a conference on the topic and we find out that um, we have one of our members that we lost that we couldn't save. And it created a renewed commitment and just an even higher level of commitment than we already had to work with each other and also to work with um, the organization and garner the support we needed to start building resources for our personnel. You know, beyond our department, the, the statistics for suicides in the fire service are staggering. In 2017, there were 108 firefighter EMT suicides in the fire service. That exceeded all line of duty deaths. And even that number is, is grossly underestimated. There is not a, a nationally recognized tracking mechanism for fire, firefighter suicides in the, in the U.S. The agency that does the best job of trying to track that is the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance that is founded by Jeff Dill. And even they estimate that they're only capturing 40 to 45 percent of the true suicides in the fire service. So 108, you, you know, that grossly underestimates the significance of the issue in the fire service. And also the um, underestimates the reason that we're putting these resources in place is we know that there's a problem and we know that we need to support our personnel better and support their healthy careers as well as healthy retirements. The resources we put in place since 2016 first of all include behavioral health and wellness through the Counseling Team International. Counseling Team International provides short-term comprehensive counseling services to operations and emergency command center personnel retirees, 
and family members living in the same home. Currently, we're working on expanding those services to make them available to all personnel by the end of the year. Additionally, we have a peer support team that has over 50 peer support team members, and we've, we've really worked hard over the last couple years to build a more robust peer support team. These are not a professional behavioral health specialist, and they aren't a replacement for those resources. They don't have a magic answer or a pill to fix the situation, but they are a group of peers who are caring, accepting, understanding, empathetic, good listeners, and who understand the importance of maintaining confidentiality. They recognize, refer, and support personnel in need of assistance, and they're someone you can talk to who understands your background and who you can trust. They provide information, awareness, tips, suggestions, and education, as well as they're just a good shoulder to lean on. Additionally, we have nine chaplains, one in each battalion, who have all the same qualities of the peer support team members, but they're also there to support your spiritual needs. We've also put together a critical incident stress management team. That's a combination of resources, including the professional counselor from TCTI, peer support team member, and a chaplain who are there to provide support following a critical incident to minimize the chances that involved personnel will suffer from the negative reactions that may occur. We've also started to host significant other survival classes. What this is is a quarterly class for significant others of fire department personnel to increase their understanding of the fire department culture, stresses of the job, and the effects this career has on their personal lives. The whole goal of this is to increase the chance for healthy relationships and reduce stress on everyone. And lastly, we've embedded behavioral health training into several of our training and academies. In the Firefighter Academy, we're currently doing four hours of behavioral health training. We've also embedded the training in Captain's Academy, where we do two hours, as well as the Battalion Chief's Academy. We also currently have scheduled two behavioral health-related conferences that are for OCFA personnel. The first is a Vegas Strong Conference that's an after-action review of the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting. That's scheduled for Friday, September 28, 2018, from 8.30 to 4 p.m. at the Salvation Army. The second conference is also a behavioral health conference hosted by the Orange County Fire Authority on October 24th or 25th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Both of those dates are available to personnel. This is going to include guest speakers from United States Forest Service, Pineville Hotshots, from FDNY talking about 9-11, from Coral Springs Parkland Fire Department, and also from Palm Beach County Fire Rescue. And we're currently planning a department-wide behavioral health training in early 2019 that all personnel will go through. If there are any questions about our behavioral health program, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Also, you can go to the local 3631 FireStrong website, which has an abundance of information on our program and also the resources available to our members. Next, we have Shauna Hill from the Counseling Team International. Shauna's gonna talk about the warning signs of depression that we should look for in ourselves and others, the importance of changing the um, stigma in the culture of the fire service, as well as the resources that the Counseling Team International provides that you have access to. In light of the suicide of Eric Lieb with the department, we um, were contacted by Orange County Fire Authority and wanted to make a legacy out of this tragedy and wanted to make a change and realized they, they understood 
the department understood that this language needs to change because the best of the best is getting to them. And they were adamant that they didn't want this to happen again. They asked us to come on board the Counseling Team International. And so we've had this blessing of coming together and working now with the department um, with psychological services for individuals, for the families, as well as your critical incident stress debriefings. So what that looks like for the firefighter, for their spouse, is, or for any of the first responders, civilians within the organization, um, is they can call us. We're, our headquarters is in San Bernardino. We have several locations from San Diego up to Santa Barbara. We have, uh, where are we at? Four locations right here in Orange County. And you call the number that's on every flyer, should be on every billboard in your station. If not, the captains have a contact. Your peer support, who's amazing, has our contact information. You call the 800 number and you will get a live body, a warm body will answer the phone. And all you say is you share, they're gonna ask if you're in crisis, cause that's the first thing. We do have hours slot out every day for immediate crisis calls. But if you're not, you just explain what department with your name and where you would like to see a clinician. So you, if you want one closer to your station or if you live down in San Diego, we can offer those, we can accommodate. We have um, females, males, ones that specialize in children, one that have therapeutic dogs, bilingual, different um, faith-based individuals. So we have a variety of, of clinicians. The majority of us have past experience with being actual first responders or married to first responders. They've been part of this role. This is our language. This is what we do. You know, we have general practitioners and we have heart doctors. We are trauma. We, this is our language. This is what we do. This is what we specialize in. You're not going to tell us anything we haven't heard. You know, a lot of times you go to the general practitioner, go to a general uh, mental health clinician, and you start talking about the trauma, the severity of these calls that you're going to go on. Most likely you might traumatize that person who's never heard about decapitation, who's never heard about an infant that you performed CPR and it was unsuccessful. So it's just know that you're coming in there and you're not going to shock us with your story. We're not going to be in awe. We're not going to get sound like this is, this is our language. This is all we know. And so when you call in and you ask to schedule appointment, we will schedule that appointment. You don't need permission from anybody. You literally call, let us know the department so we know who to contact at the end um, as far as like a billing purpose. But if your department were to call us and ask you if so-and-so is seen from the chief all the way down to the probie that's been on for two days we can't confirm or deny anything when we do bill it's by number it's not by your social security number date there's no way they're going to find out who is coming in and you don't again don't need their permission it's so confidential that if your spouse if you had the brochure with our 800 number on it on your refrigerator and she decides she wants to call in and make an appointment you can't call and verify is my wife coming in it's that confidential, okay? It is your safe place. And a lot of guys have a hard time, and girls understand that they really do have a safe place, finally. And that is your safe place. You know, it's short-term therapy. It's 10 to 12 sessions per issue, per person, per year. So if that means you have, you're struggling in marriage, you need marital counseling, and then your son is, is struggling with anxiety, he gets his own 10 sessions with his own therapist for anxiety. So you can actually, you know, it's open to anybody in that family. Anybody can use it. It's access. It's there for you specifically. It could be personal 
related. It can be related to your professional job. If you wanted to work on maybe stuff that you possibly feel you have PTSD from or just critical incident calls that you don't want your wife and you don't want to consume your marital counseling sessions with that, you can have your own private sessions and work on that stuff, work-related stuff. So they're used in a variety of ways. It's there for you. We're there 24-7, 365. Um, and at midnight, you can call. We're on call. There's three of us on call 24-7. Um, so once our main office in San Bernardino is closed, it goes to a call center. And that looks like you call. They will connect within about two minutes. They call our cell phones, and you and I are connected. And we can have that conversation if you need to talk to somebody and sort through something at midnight. That is there for you. You're not going to be put on hold for 30 minutes. You're not going to be referred to somebody the next morning or on Monday morning. It could be New Year's Eve. It can be Christmas Eve. There's going to be somebody there for you. And you can guarantee it's going to be someone local. So you're not going to be calling Iowa, Maine. It's someone that hopefully, even if you establish a good connection, you can do follow-up sessions with this person. Um, so that's how that works. So let's talk about depression first. Um, because oftentimes, especially just the society in whole thinks of depression as someone that lays in bed, doesn't want to get out of their pajamas, pulls the sheets over their head. And in this culture, it doesn't necessarily look like that. And I think that's what we're waiting to see, the guy that doesn't want to get out of his bed at the station or just sitting eating the bonbons. And so there's a lot of things that we, signs that we miss or maybe we just don't want to see. And it's really important for this culture to understand and really be educated on what that looks like. How do we operationalize that? And so with that being said, some of the things that are important to look for in a first responder signs of depression is a big thing is irritability. They're just really irritable about just the simple things they wouldn't normally be irritated about. They get really angry. And what I always say about anger is anger is the external display of internal pain. So when you see someone highly you know, irritable and angry, just kind of take that breath, think about what is that triggering? What primary emotion is that triggering? What's really go on, going on behind that anger? And have that conversation. And that's where we have that fear of not wanting that conversation. Is on top of irritability, we also have the isolation. They don't want to be around anybody. So they might, they're not going to go in their PJs or in their sweats and pull the covers over their head, but they might just isolate and be on their phone in their room. Um, they might just sit in the recliner and just on the phone, watching, doing games, not partaking in the conversation, just really isolating. When something funny is said that everyone's laughing, their emotions are different. They're not laughing. Or something that they shouldn't be laughing about, they just start laughing. So their emotions are just not on par. As well as um, the anger, the isolation, listen to the conversations that, not being nosy, but listen to the conversations that they're having with their spouses or their kids. Why are they screaming? Do you hear them in the room, other room screaming at their kids on the phone, screaming at their wives? Are they telling you about being extremely angry at the wife because she looked at him sideways or how dare her say that? Or the kid spilt some milk and he's screaming at him. So it's not, the conversation's not appropriate for what's going on. Because a lot of times those relationships suffer when someone is depressed and their the thoughts are irrational. They're not um, on point with where it should be. Uh, a lot of things, another thing that you can do is the appetite. Okay, a lot of depressed people, they're either overeat or they'll undereat. So if, you've, if this is a guy that he 
straps on the saddlebags and just goes to town and eats and has seconds and thirds and fourths. He's not eating. He's like, I don't feel like it. I don't want, I'm going to go lay down. Um, you see him taking a small plate or someone that normally is your chicken and broccoli kind of guy who's just eating a lot of comfort food. He stopped working out. He's becoming more lethargic. He's just not in the mood to work out anymore. You see his behaviors change as far as his scheduling. So he's not eating normally. He's not working out. And this guy is the one that is always up first doing his laps, running, working out in the gym. He doesn't want to do that. And he said, when you ask him about it, it's, I'm just not feeling it today. I just don't feel like it. I'm tired. I don't feel well. So these are the signs, some of them, that you can just really look for because they're not going to come out and tell you. And I don't want you waiting or anybody waiting to say, I'm depressed, I need help, because you're never going to get that. Maybe one in a blooming, but most likely you're not going to get someone that's going to come out as blatant as that and ask, say, I need help, I'm depressed. So just be aware of these signs. And most important is the language needs to change amongst the first responders. And that looks like we, vulnerability in this culture gets you killed. Vulnerability gets you hurt. We don't train our guys in the academies. You're gonna see a lot of trauma. You're gonna see more trauma in one day than the average civilian sees in a lifetime. We don't train them on what to do with all that trauma, where to put it. We'll teach them how to throw a ladder. We'll teach them how to lay hose and just be this really cool looking guy or girl and how to drive this truck or this engine or squat. But we don't teach them what they're gonna see every day. I can't guarantee my guys that come in and my gals, you're gonna see this full-blown structure fire every day throughout your lifetime. A massive like one that you've always trained hard for. But I can guarantee them that first day on that rig, they're gonna see some type of trauma. But we haven't front-loaded them with how to clean that trauma box. I call it the trauma box. First responders have a big trauma box. And we can't see it because it's in here. And we don't, because it's in here, we think we don't have to teach them how to clean it out. And that's where we fall short with them. We don't educate and we don't front load them. I often talk about this trauma box and I try to operationalize it because the guys when they, and the gals that come in, they think that they're going to get a kumbaya hug. And that's not what this is about. And I'll talk about the counseling team and what we do and what that looks like in a little bit. But I tell them about the trauma box they have in their head. And... They don't tell you when you get that badge pinned on you. They also implant this little box in your head that I call the trauma box. And they don't tell you about it. And they sometimes don't even give you a key to it. They'll give you a badge and a trauma box. And we don't train you on it. And we don't train the first responders on how to clean that out. So it's really important that we start changing the language and start changing the culture in having that conversation. Because I can tell you right now, if there was a firefighter on the floor working and he was limping and they pull up his his boot or take off his boot and it's swollen and it's purple there's no way they would let him continue to work they would drive him to the er or to have it look at they would say take off they would call him on like you're a danger you we're not we care about you and we're, you want to get this healed we don't have that conversation when it comes to mental wellness and we don't call it on people we don't say hey look you seem like you're wrestling with something. Is everything okay? We don't want to have that conversation because guess what? No one's trained them on how to have that conversation and how to front load with this is normal. And I tell the first responders that come into my office, this stuff is normal. And unless you train, I don't expect you to run a marathon. 
it would be crazy for me to say, you've eaten bonbons for the last five years, you're 400 pounds overweight, but tomorrow you're gonna, you're gonna run a marathon and you're not gonna have any injuries after that marathon. And in essence, that's what we do. We just shove and shove trauma into that box and then we don't teach them how to train for that, how to clean that out, how to expect the next big thing. So when the next big event, a line of duty death, a suicide or fire, the trauma box is already full. And now you're telling them to run a marathon with this box that's already full. There's gonna be psychological injury. And if no one's front-loaded them with information on what they're going to experience during a critical incident that put them over the edge and what that looks like the next 24 to 48 hours, they're gonna think they lost their marbles, clinically speaking. And so it's front-loading these guys with this trauma box, this is what it looks like before it goes in the trauma box. You're gonna have maybe the irritability. The movie, I call it, is gonna play over in your head. And the what-ifs are gonna play over in your head. Your appetite's gonna matter. There's things that just happen, and it's absolutely normal. But the thing is, we're afraid to talk about it because we don't train how to talk about it, how to train out emotions. These are emotions. Like it or not, we're all humans, and inside, we have emotions. It's part of our makeup. It's part of who we are. But we seem to fall short in training with those emotions. So that's time, a lot of times where the counseling team comes in is we take, a, we take the granola out of it. And we're there as, just as with law enforcement, they have range masters or you guys have on your staff you know, that specialize in heavy rescue or water rescue. Um, this is our niche. We're the psychological range. We, can, we know you're gonna see trauma. And you should not be ignorant that you're not going to see trauma. Let us train you in how to cope with that. Let us come in. If it, it might be personal and it might not, it might be work-related. Whatever it is, it's training you on how to sift through these emotions. It's training you how to be balanced. Because guess what? We train you how to take emotion out of this job. The department does not pay for you to cry or fall apart on a call. In fact, you can't console everyone and sit and talk to how do you feel and they ask you how you feel. You have a job to do. It's a patient, it's a victim. However, that vulnerability, if you, you can't be completely vulnerable on the call. But when you go and become a spouse and a parent, and that transition, the only transition you have is driving from the station to home, you walk in, now you have to be vulnerable if you want those relationships to be successful. You have to emotionally check in. You've been trained how to not emotionally, how to emotionally check out, but no one's trained you how to emotionally check in. So we help them create this balance and knowing that so you can have a successful life because if your private life suffers, it's going to spill out in your professional career. It's just inevitable. And we just kind of shove it and shove it and like put that in our box too. And no one's taught us or trained us, so we're just not gonna do that vulnerability because in this job, vulnerability gets us hurt. It's a sign of weakness. So it must be the same over here, and it's the exact opposite. So really, just front-loading them on what they're gonna experience during these traumatic events, how to stay balanced, how to load them and arm them with coping skills, and what self-care looks like. When I ask um, my first responders, what's your self-care? They look at me like I've just spoken a foreign language. Like they don't understand that concept of the importance of self-care. Well, if you're a marathon runner, I, I hope you're foam rolling your muscles after, you just ran 26 miles. When I ask them, what do you do afterwards? You're gonna get blisters, you're gonna get shin splints, it's just, it's just the price you pay. 
while in law enforcement and in fire service, the price of admission is how to deal with that trauma and to be emotionally intelligent. So how do you foam roll it? How do you foam roll your brain out? How do you foam roll you psychologically? And that's part of that is self-care. And they just look at me like, I don't know. So I tell them, so you're telling me you run marathons every day and you don't put ice on your mind, you don't foam roll, that they just, until you start changing this language of the touchy-feely, come give me a hug, I don't want a hug. I want to arm you and train you and let us be your trainers in how to psychologically be fit. And so we have those conversations. And sometimes when we find that there is a first responder that's struggling with maybe depression or anxiety and it's coming out on the job, we can go back further in his life. And a lot of times we find the root of that and be able to fix that foundation. Sometimes that means completely tearing down the house that's already crumbling, going, finding that foundation, finding those cracks and working on fixing. Those cracks will always be there. It's part of that foundation but literally just patch them up and put a good solid foundation so they can continue to build their lives the right way. Just being emotionally equipped, physically equipped, so they can live that balanced life. One of the things that the department is also implementing um, along with TCTI is your critical incident stress debriefings. You're gonna be having now clinicians show up and run these. So you might be asked to partake in one of these. Um, I encourage whether department decides to be mandatory or not, I encourage everyone to be part of this. And again, it's not this kumbaya fest. It allows a clinician to go into there to process. It's not therapy, it's therapeutic. And it brings everybody together in the room, kind of time stops for that moment, and we process those really hard, difficult calls. And it allows the clinician to assess each individual to kind of see if it was that call for them. Because it might not have been that call for the captain, or it might not have been for that call for the engineer who really wasn't exposed to it because he's out by the engine. But it was that call for the rookie fireman as he's giving CPR to a two-year-old little boy, knowing that he has a two-year-old two little boy at home. So we just don't know. And we don't want to assume, well, because it wasn't that call, I'm not going to show up. No, because when it is that call for you, I want all your brothers and sisters to be there for you when it's that call. But again, it's changing the language and knowing we take the granola out of it. And it's going and just assessing, front-loading them with what they're going to experience, what they might experience, um, things that are normal and things that are going to be abnormal. And it goes around and I have them assess their side. They love to assess the body. They go to a call and, and they assess their patients. Okay, let the clinician assess them. Look at where the psychological injury is. I said, did you fall off the top rung on this call or did you just kind of step off and twist a little ankle off the bottom rung? Where is this? Was this a blow to the head with a sledgehammer or was this like a paper cut that you'll be good in 10 minutes and you could cook the dinner or is this the one that guy needs to maybe even go home on or just take a 30 minute break to himself what everyone's going to respond to it different depending on what chapter they are in their lives so if you have little kids yes you're gonna it's gonna maybe impact you more when your kids are little versus you go on a child call and your kids are already 25 or maybe you don't even have kids and you don't even like kids so these calls really aren't you're sad but the call isn't that call for you that you're gonna struggle and wrestle with. So that allows everyone to be in the room, kind of process out how they took and interpreted this call, allow them to assess. I want you guys to start assessing your own injuries, your own psychological injuries, and if it's needs for further care or for good with just this debrief. And so I encourage everyone to attend any of these because this is where the culture is going. We need to change this culture because it lets me know when people say they don't need it, then why are firefighters killing themselves more than the job itself?
The Orange County Fire Authority is offering a fall behavioral health conference in October. It's a one-day conference offered twice on October 24th and 25th. The theme of this conference is first responder behavioral health, past, present, and future. We have in the past, uh, in 1994, the South Canyon Fire on Storm King Mountain claimed the lives of, of 14 members of the Prineville Interagency Hotshots. Kimberly Lightly was one of the surviving uh, crew members that day. And since that time, uh, she has worked with the Forest Service as being an expert in uh, firefighter behavioral health. Uh, she'll be here to kind of share her story uh, of that incident at Storm King Mountain and where she has come uh, in the previous years since then as an educator in creating um, lessons in firefighter or first responder behavioral health. We have two members attending uh, this event from the FDNY. I have uh, retired Battalion Chief uh, Joe Krebs and firefighter uh, Frank Ungaro. Four days after September 11, 2001, they had responded to the incident and made contact with the acting fire chief at that time and they were asked to put this program into motion. They work in conjunction with the FDNY counseling unit and created a fully functional uh, peer support, family support team uh, that operated uh, voluntarily in the city of New York for months following uh, the 9-11 tragedy. On February 14th this year in uh, Parkland, Florida, an incident occurred at the Stoneman Douglas High School where 17 innocent civilians were uh, killed uh, in an active shooter incident. So we have three members from uh, Florida, South Florida, coming out to assist us uh, with this behavioral health conference. Um, we have the Coral Springs, Parkland, Florida, Fire Chief uh, Frank Babinek. Um, he'll be here to discuss the actual incident as it occurred at Stoneman Douglas. Um, we also have uh, Fire Captain Chris Bader from Coral Springs Parkland, who he's the president of the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative. And he'll be, he'll be able to deliver good information on their critical incident stress management program uh, that was established with their city prior to this incident. So we also have uh, Fire Captain Jeremy Hurd from the Palm Beach County Fire Department and he is the Director of Mental Wellness for the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative. So check your calendar if you're uh, able to make it in October. Uh, please join us for the uh, OCFA Behavioral Health Conference, Past, Present, and Future. It's a one-day conference offered twice on October 24th and 25th. Um, we can all learn something from these uh, individuals that have gone through significant events in their careers, uh, where we've gone, how far we've come since 1994 and the South Canyon Fire, uh, all the way up to uh, today and where do we take it from here? We hope to see you there. 
Thanks again to Jonathan Wilby and Shauna Hill for participating in this podcast. Please don't forget to sign up to the OCFA Behavioral Health Conference on either October 24th or 25th. Until then, take care of each other and we'll talk to you soon.